Good afternoon, everyone, and good morning to those in the Western West Coast. Uh, both of our guests today are actually uh, in the West Coast. Uh, it's morning for them. Welcome, uh, Ambassador Pfeiffer, and welcome, uh, Catherine Professor Stoner from uh, Stanford University. Um, our event title today is Can the Western Policy Help Ukraine Achieve Victory? in light of uh, most recent developments and uh, the US um, high level visits to Ukraine uh, and then you know Europeans mobilizing i think there was an announcement of additional aid package today uh, from the european side as well uh, there's a lot of support to uh, Ukraine both militarily and economically on the humanitarian side as well we're going to talk about this broad picture and uh, how this, these aid packages and Western efforts can uh, facilitate some sort, sort of victory for Ukraine. Of course, we're going to dis discuss what that victory could look like and what it means. Uh, today, I'm joined by uh, two great experts, preeminent uh, scholars in their fields. Uh, they don't have, uh, they don't need long introductions. Stephen Pfeiffer is a former ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, he is with the Brookings Institution. Um, and uh, Dr. Stoner, Catherine Stoner, uh, is senior fellow with Freeman, Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. These are just uh, one of the hats that they each uh, are wearing uh, these days. So they're, uh, they're, you know, we, we thank them, uh, very much for joining us because, you know, it's, they are the top experts in their fields. And I will go, uh, start, go ahead and start with ambassador Pfeiffer. I will be asking him, uh, for an assessment, uh, of US policy in his introductory remarks and how the US is leading the Western effort. And then I will go to Dr. Stoner for uh, hopefully um, getting a, getting the perspective of the Russians on the ongoing conflict. And then I'll contribute on the Turkish side and then we'll take the conversation from there. Uh, again, welcome both of you. Ambassador Pfeiffer, please. Uh, or is yours, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Kadir. Um, let me just give maybe a five minute overview of US policy, beginning with where the policy was shaping up back in December, uh, well before the war started, but I think at that point, US intelligence already had some pretty significant signs that the Russians were going to invade. And so the focus that you saw in December was trying to dissuade the Kremlin from launching a war. And, and so there were efforts to try to offer a, what we call diplomatic off-ramps. So you saw in January, uh, both the United States and NATO offered negotiations on things like arms control and risk reduction measures that could have contributed to European security, uh, but the Russians weren't interested. At the same time, beginning in early December, uh, Washington began saying, if the Russians invade, there are going to be three sets of costs. One will be sanctions that go way beyond what the Russians have been hit with to date. Two would be increased flows of weapons going to the Ukrainians to help them better defend themselves. And third uh, would be a greater NATO military presence on its eastern flank. And actually, I, I think uh, correctly, uh, the United States and Europe did not wait 
for the Russian invasion to begin the second and third items. So you already saw at the end of January, increased flows of weapons, particularly from the United States, Britain, and Poland to the Ukrainians. And you also saw the United States, France, Germany, Britain, moving some forces into Poland, the Baltic states, Romania, uh, to both uh, assure those countries, but also make clear to the Russians that NATO territory was off limits. Uh, now, in the end, uh, US policy, Western policy, failed to deter the Russian invasion. Um, and I'll defer to Catherine on this. You know, I, I'm not sure if Putin was deterrable on this question. So what you've seen since then is U.S. policy basically looking for ways to support uh, support Ukraine and impose greater costs on Russia. And, and the way I see the objective, it's one, it's to facilitate a Ukrainian victory, which I think is you know, hard to achieve, but not impossible. And I define that as pushing the Russians back to the line as of February 23, or at a minimum, facilitating a, negotiating set, a negotiated settlement on terms that would be acceptable to Kyiv that would meet its key interests. So what you've seen is a significant boost in arms flow going to Ukraine, $3 billion worth in the past four months. And initially it was things like javelins and stingers, which are relatively easy to use, and then facilitating the provision from other countries of S-300s and Soviet legacy weapons that the Ukrainians were familiar with. So it wouldn't require a lot of training. I think what you've seen in the last couple of weeks is the assessment in Washington is that this war could go on for a number of months. And so now what they're doing is they're providing more sophisticated weapons, uh, things like artillery, kamikaze drones, uh, armored personnel carriers that will require some training. So they are bringing Ukrainians out uh, of Ukraine. They're training them as the equipment begins to flow in. And again, it, it, it takes a little bit more time to get those capabilities to the point where the Ukrainians can use them but they are going to, I think, significantly enhance uh, the ability of the Ukrainian military. And I expect that uh, in the future, other types of weapons may be considered. The United States has been doing the diplomacy to lead the Western sanctions on Russia, and the conversations on this were already beginning in December, so they could be imposed fairly quickly. And my guess is that the sanctions were tougher than the Kremlin expected, and really, I think, two cases. One was sanctions on the Russian central bank. You know, Vladimir Putin had 600, and I think, $30 billion in foreign reserves in the Russian central banks on February 1. Uh, the mistake was half of those were in Western financial institutions. That's now locked down and frozen. But also the ban on high-tech exports. So you're seeing lots of reports now of Russian factories closing. The mayor of Moscow says he expects to lose 200,000 jobs in the coming weeks. And I think there's some real economic pain coming to Russia uh, as a result of these sanctions. But it probably is going to take some time to really hit home. Uh, you've also seen the U.S. move to bolster its presence on NATO's eastern flank. Uh, roughly 10,000 troops have moved from the United States uh, to either Germany or to Poland, mainly to Poland in the last uh, three months. And again, that goal is to basically reassure Central and Eastern European members of NATO that NATO is there to defend them. And also, I think, to send a signal to Moscow that while the United States and NATO have made clear that they are not prepared to send their forces to fight for Ukraine, uh, they very much are prepared to fight to defend NATO territory. And then you've seen political actions trying to isolate Moscow, uh, actions at the United Nations. Uh, there's a debate going on now about the G20 meeting in, in six months' time. How do you handle that? I think a lot of Western leaders are not going to want to be there if Vladimir Putin is there. But I think also you've seen now, and I, I think uh, uh, Secretary Austin said the quiet part out loud, you know, there is an effort now in a longer-term goal uh, to, to weaken Russia. And, and it's not in terms of continuing this war beyond what the Ukrainians want. I mean, I, quite frankly, if the Ukrainians reach a point where they want to end the war and 
they believe that's in their best interest, you know, we should be supportive of that decision. Uh, but however this war ends, uh, my sense is that the United States and many countries in Europe are going to look at Russia very much in the sense of an adversarial relationship. Uh, and it's hard for me, for example, to see a move by Washington, again, however this war ends in Ukraine, uh, a move to anything that looks like normalization absent two conditions. And one would be Vladimir Putin's departure uh, from the leadership, and then a successor who probably looks a lot like Vladimir Putin in background, uh, but hopefully ends the war, uh, or you know this could be several years down the road, but then makes some political changes, some real changes that suggest that the Russia that you know we would be dealing with is not going to be the Russia we have today. And so I do think, for example, again, however the conflict ends, there's going to be a lot of sentiment in Washington uh, to maintain some of the sanctions, particularly the sanctions on high-tech uh, exports, which see appear to be impacting uh, uh, more sophisticated Russian weapons. Uh, so again, we'll see how the war ends, but my I guess is more broadly, uh, we're in for a very long, cool period of relations between Washington and Moscow. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, Catherine, please uh, go ahead and give us your assessment of uh, what the Russians might be thinking, what Putin might be thinking. Uh, one question already Ambassador posed to you was whether this was deterrable in the first place at the beginning of the conflict, please. Thank you. Sure. So <clears throat> I hope you don't mind if I share my screen. I just have a few slides that might be helpful to oops, kind of situate our um, discussion. Um, and I just want to point out that this is, of course, not well, let me put it in this mode. Um, that this isn't new, right? Um, where, where we are in, in 2022, and I actually, it's not new in, in 2014, as I'm showing you here on, on the screen. Um, really, we can, we can, you know, take this back a very, very long time. Historically, Mr. Putin's perspective, and he, as he, as he told us last summer in his kind of odd history or understanding of uh, history of Ukraine, um, he uh, is, um, uh, basically saying that U Ukraine um, was uh, part of Russia. It was accidentally given um, to um, Ukraine by Nikita, Nikita Khrushchev in, in a celebration of, uh, of something. Uh, but it was never dreamt that uh, Ukraine would not be part of the Soviet Union. And so this has all been a mistake. Um, and um, it, it's part of, I think, his legacy of gathering the lands, if you will. Um, of what he sees as something called Nova Russia uh, or, or you know, New Russia. And it's really old Russia. So this would in include um, in Ukraine, Belarus, possibly Moldova, which is here on our, our map on the outer edge of Ukraine, where there has been uh, a, um, a sort of simmering frozen conflict uh, along this border. I don't know if you can see where my, my arrow is moving yes. or not. You can't, right? So, um, and this is called Transnistria, uh, and the, and Russia has troops here too. Uh, that's been going on since the 90s. So, when the Soviet Union fell apart, of course, Russian uh, speakers were left in the other uh, in in the other 14 republics of the Soviet Union, the 15th being Russia itself. Um, so, I speak English, uh, but I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, have England come and and help me here in the United States or save me. Um, from from something. Um, and this is how the, Ukra <laughs> the Ukrainian perspective, right, is that um, 
most of them don't want to be saved uh, by Russia, even if they speak um, Russian. So, uh, but Mr. Putin doesn't understand that. He doesn't see that there is a, a, a way for there to be some kind of personal agency on the part of Ukrainians. And so he thinks that their color revolutions, um, and there was one in Georgia, the Republic of Georgia in 2003, and then of course, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in, in 2004, protesting a corrupt, uh, corrupted election. That election was overturned. Um, there was a uh, democratically uh, elected um, president in free and fair elections um, uh, in um, Mr. Yushchenko. He then lost uh, in 2010 to uh, Yanukovych, um, uh, who was kind of an old commun communist style leader. And ultimately, uh, his ouster in, in March of well, February of 2014 uh, prompted, ostensibly, Russia to seize, under Putin, to seize Crimea. So I want to point out that this was done under Putin, and it isn't obvious that any Russian, other Russian leader would have behaved the same way. So you asked me to link this to, to um, my, my book, uh, Kadir. And, and so the regime type matters. It matters that, that Putin is an authoritarian and that it's been a hardening authoritarian system since 2014. Uh, pardon me, since his return to the Kremlin in 2012 uh, in particular. Um, he's been in office now, of course, for, for 22 years and, and uh, he, he could actually be in office until 2036 um, because he had some constitutional changes made uh, in 2020 to allow that. So um, first, there's this uprising, this orange revolution, and and Mr. Putin's worldview is that again, people don't have personal agency. Those protesters uh, in 2004 must have been put up to it by the CIA, and um, evidence of this is Victoria Newland from the State Department handing out cookies um, to protesters at the time. Things like this, you know, it, that they allege the Russian side alleges happened uh, in. Um, in 2004 and then again we have this uprising in 2014 because Yanukovych who is then as I mentioned elected president in the fall of 2013 was to have signed uh, a promise to accede or apply to uh, the European Union uh, as a member and this is the problem it's not NATO expansion as as Putin has said uh, that is a problem because NATO has not expanded to Russian borders since 2004 with the Baltic republics. It's already there, right? Here we are in 2022. And in, in 2004, Ukraine was not about to join NATO. It, and in fact, had been told someday they would, and Steve can talk more about that uh, because he was involved there. And I know he has great, great insight into that. Um, they were told that uh, by the US in 2004, um, but as was Georgia, that someday they might join. Um, but they were not about to join and, and we can, I think, discuss the, that this may have been quite problematic. And the reason is the Europeans didn't want to provoke uh, Russia. Well, it turns out it didn't matter. Russia was provoked anyway, even without NATO membership. And that's because I think the nature of the regime in Russia and the nature of the regime in Ukraine and what we have in Ukraine, even though it was imperfect and, and uh, a great deal of corruption there as well, has a thriving civil society has an active uh, parliament, has uh, had um, democratically elected presidents. Um, people have, you know, there's uh, the right to free speech, the right to uh, an open and fair media there. And, and um, so not perfect in Ukraine, but certainly not 
uh, the same conditions politically in Russia. And it is, therefore, uh, an example potentially to Russians of what they could have. Um, they could have Ukraine. They, they, you know, and if Ukraine is made successful and prosperous and democratic, well, that's a threat to an authoritarian regime because Ukraine is a huge country. It's the largest country in Europe, if we don't count Russia as part of Europe, has 44 million people. Um, and uh, it, it matters. And so this is both, um, uh, I think, this conflict, a result of the conflict in, in 2014, when you'll remember Crimea down here, the Crimean Peninsula, was seized and occupied um, because um, uh, the president at the time, Yanukovych, faced uh, this uprising, popular uprising, against his decision to not sign um, the treaty that he had promised or the papers that he had promised to start the accession process to the European Union. People came out into Maidan Square in something called Euromaidan in November of 2013. That lasts through February 2014 when an agreement is negotiated with Yanukovych uh, and things seem to be settling. But the next thing we know, Yanukovych disappears, the president of Ukraine, pops up in Russia and says his life was under threat. And then these little green men appear in the Crimean Peninsula uh, without insignia on their shoulders, and they turn out to be Russian-speaking. And of course, it's the Russian military coming out of their bases, and they seize Crimea from a sovereign and independent Ukraine. And then for the last eight years, with 14,000 lives lost on the Ukraine, in, in Ukraine, um, there has been a, uh, a, a civil war, effectively, but it is a civil war that is supported by Russia. Um, and the uh, separatists here are armed by Russia. This dark spot um, is uh, the area that, that on February 23rd, the day before the Russian invasion, was occupied by uh, the separatists. But this has been, there has been active uh, um, uh, conflict here for the last eight years. This is the entire Donbass area, these, uh, these two provinces of Ukraine that Russia, you know, is, is moving through now. And we could find a, an area of the conflict, but you've probably seen it. And here is the city of Mariupol here. So getting back, I guess, to, you know, what, why does Putin want this? Well, he has invoked historical uh, reasons, right? That Kiev and Rus is where uh, Orthodox, uh, you know, Prince Vladimir in 989 took on Russian Orthodoxy. So uh, he has invoked that as a reason to do it, and that has proven very popular with the Russian people. But the real reason is this is this threat uh, and the way he sees from Ukraine turning to the West and the way he sees the world is uh, in terms of great powers. And, and so there is the West and there is Russia. Um, and then there is China. Uh, Russia is a great power, um, according to Mr. Putin, um, and uh, its rights must be respected and uh, its sovereignty, and it has a natural uh, historical uh, sphere of influence, and Ukraine is crucial to that. So um, having Ukraine be a different kind of political and economic example uh, is a threat to his regime. And then, um, uh, you know, we can talk about the timing. I, I'll stop here uh, as to why we think he did this now. Um, that is in, in, in 2022 as opposed to having continued in 2014 um, uh, to occupy more of Ukraine, which is what they're trying to do here, where my arrow is. So let me stop there, Kadir, so we can maybe have more of a conversation and questions. Thank you, Catherine. Um, I appreciate those remarks, and I've uh, taken away 
uh, I think your answer to the question about uh, Putin was, uh, this was probably not deterrable. And Ambassador uh, Pfeiffer, please, um, if you wanna comment on that, that's fine. Uh, and what I wanted to ask you also is, you know, you've, you've described an evolution in US policy from first, you know, trying to negotiate a way out uh, in the face of Russian threats. And then when that proved impossible, US moved to uh, basically policy of increasing costs. And then now we are in a stage where uh, the United States uh, wants to ensure that Russia can never do this again, regardless of what happens in Ukraine, by sort of, you know, uh, reducing Russian capabilities, etc. So um, this kind of evolution along the way, uh, as you mentioned yourself, deterrence has been has been impossible, basically. Uh, at the beginning, you know, Biden ruled out any kind of military response. Uh, do you think that had an impact uh, on this uh, larger failure uh, of deterrence? Uh, if if he didn't do that, do you think we would still be here in a similar situation, uh, given that Putin was probably going to do this one way or another? Uh, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good question. Um, I guess I, I'm not sure uh, I would have advocated the administration uh, saying it so many times that there would not be US or NATO forces fighting uh, on Ukraine's behalf. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, had the administration put that threat out there in an overt way, uh, I'm not sure the Russians would have seen this credible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so, I, I don't think it would have had an impact on this, given this in, in Vladimir Putin's mind, the asymmetry of interest that he sees in terms of, you know, for him, as, as Catherine was saying, I think there's a big issue. It, it's not, I mean, NATO enlargement is a secondary question, but it's this, you know, the danger that a democratic, thriving, Western oriented Ukraine poses to not to Russia, but to the Kremlin, because that's the kind of yeah. Ukraine that gets Russians to say, why can't we have that sort of democracy? The other thing, and is I'm actually also at the end of the day, not sure that if the United States and NATO went in to defend and we actually put boots on the ground, I'm not sure that actually is good for Ukraine in this sense, is that that then changes the conflict in the eyes of the Kremlin. And it's not just a war with Ukraine, which at some to some extent, you know, maybe it, the Kremlin may conclude it can walk away from that. But if it's a war against Ukraine, the United States, and NATO, I think it then perhaps becomes existential. I mean, that's the situation in which I would begin mm -hmm. to fear, for example, the use of Russian tactical nuclear weapons you know, against Ukrainian and NATO forces on Ukrainian territory. So I, I think that there's a line here that's probably worth preserving, uh, but I am glad to see that the administration and other NATO, I mean, it's actually, I think there's now 35 countries around the world are providing either defensive assistance or weapons to Ukraine. And I think we should be doing everything that we can to give the Ukrainians uh, what they need to, to defend themselves. Thank you, Ambassador. Of course, my question was counterfactual and in political <laughs> science, whenever we ask that, right? It's always uh, have to, has to consider, factor in some sort of, you know, degree of speculation. So thanks for that uh, thoughtful answer, uh, nevertheless. 
I, I do want to come back to that, you know, military support and how it's being uh, given to Ukraine. But before then, just go back to Dr. Stoner again. And when we discussed her book in our, uh, you know, past events, uh, which I learned a lot, I highly recommend it to everyone. Uh, one of the things you discussed, the overarching point I thought, Dr. Stoner, was that you know, Russia, don't underestimate Russia. Russia is able to use multiple sources of strength in a relatively efficient, smart way and con uh, sort of disinformation campaigns, military capabilities, economic resources, energy. Uh, they are able to kind of uh, use these, of course, nuclear capabilities. Russia is able to use these in a relatively effective way to carve itself at, you know, position of strength in the international arena, international system. Now post-Ukraine war, not post yet, but uh, we've seen a lot of, you know, capability issues, especially on the military front. Has your view changed or have you adjusted that view or is it still actually fitting into the picture you provided? Because you, I remember in your book, you're like, Russia is not necessarily great in any particular area or number one in any particular area, but a combination of this uh, gives mm -hmm. Russia mm -hmm. a lot of status in the international mm -hmm. system. Uh, yeah, well, not necessarily status, but, but influence, um, yeah. it, perhaps disproportionately disproportionate influence relative to some of the conventional ways of measuring power, like size of a population or size of its military or how much it spends on military or the size of its GDP. So um, so I think there are a couple of things about the military. For, first of all, I mean, uh, the, the, we, we are supplying Ukraine with a, a lot of weaponry. That's great for Ukraine. But Russia, the Russian army is not just fighting the Ukrainian military here. They're, they are kind of now, given what we are we're supplying, they're, they're fighting in, in part against what we have. Um, and we have the most powerful military in, in the world, in the United States, and obviously with NATO. Um, it, the weakness of Russia, as the book ends in the final chapter, is the regime, right? And so that is the problem here. So the regime has a big, in, in Russia, under Putin, so Putin, Russia is not Putin, Putin is not Russia, although he tries to meld those things in our minds, right? So the regime here is is incredibly corrupt, and that's also you know what I is is noted in, in the book, and this is a weakness. Um, and so is the military, right? The military is part of the regime, and so some of what we're seeing, what we saw initially uh, with the military, was you know the corruption within, um, trying to sell off um, uh, equipment, um, even in Belarus before they they entered um, Ukraine, um, and then I think the real issue here is uh, confirmation bias and intelligence failures. So you might remember in the Iraq war, um, George W. Bush um, went in to Iraq um, because the, the thought was that Saddam Hussein, Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And he was assured by Don Rumsfeld <clears throat> and then Minister of Defense, or Secretary of Defense here in the United States and Dick Cheney, that his vice president, that American tanks would be greeted by Iraqis with rose petals. So uh, that turned out not to be right, <laughs> if you remember. Um, uh, the Iraqis weren't as thrilled as we'd hoped. 
So here we are with in, in a not dissimilar situation with Russia going into Ukraine. And remember, Putin, the way Putin sees the world, as I said earlier, is that the Ukrainian people have no individual agency or beliefs, right? And, and presumably he thinks this about everybody, including Russian people. They are manipulated and they are being held hostage basically by the West and this corrupt government. And Zelensky happens to be president now, but he would have said the same about other uh, elected presidents of, of Ukraine. Uh, but Zelensky, you know, he particularly probably doesn't like. But um, uh, and so what we will do is we will go in and liberate them because they and the Ukrainian people will greet our tanks with bouquets uh, of flowers. And instead, they were greeted with Molotov cocktails, right? Remember the civilians filling up those those um, bottles with Molotov cocktails that we saw early on in the war. And he thought that Zelensky would free would flee Kiev, um, and that uh, they wouldn't need to worry about logistics beyond two or three days. And and day two, he was urging um, the Ukrainian military to uh, join the Russian side. Um, none of that happened. Uh, so it's you know this again is a problem in an autocracy um, like his, where uh, people don't want to bring him bad intelligence or something that might disconfirm what he wants to do anyway. And then there is, a, 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 just as we had this problem of confirmation bias, uh, there is a way to read the information in front of you to confirm what you want to do anyway. And so I think this is what happened combined with corruption in the military, uh, sending the, the B team initially uh, in, especially around Kiev. Um, and uh, now um, they have, um, uh, chief, the equivalent of chief of the general staff, taking over um, and uh, more closely supervising um, the the military efforts in the east, um, and and although they're moving slowly, uh, unfortunately, you know they're moving uh, across territory. So hopefully, the weapons that that we are sending will 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 slow that. But you know. The, the toll on Ukrainian soldiers and the Ukrainian military, I mean, the, pardon me, the Russian military uh, may eventually percolate to the population and we start seeing signs of unhappiness uh, with how long this is taking because that was not supposed to happen the length of time. This should have been over by now. Um, is That was clearly the plan initially. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, some of the... Uh... Russian soldiers that were captured by the Ukrainians uh, north of Kyiv, and this was their sort of their main thrust. I, I mean, I think their 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 number one objective was to try to get Kyiv. Right, uh, they initially, said that yeah. they were sent into uh, Ukraine with three days of rations. Uh, it wasn't and, supposed to last longer than that. Right. right, and then the Ukrainians also say, I, I mean, I haven't con got confirmations, but they, they say that one of the convoys they destroyed, they found in one of the trucks boxes of dress uniforms, which they thought was for the victory parade. Right. So uh, there's just been, I think, and this is actually the thing that surprises me. I mean, had you asked Catherine or me you know, or any Western expert on Ukraine, we would have said the Ukrainians are going to fight. Um, I mean, I was in uh, Kiev uh, January 30 and 31. And when you would talk to people not in the military, they didn't say, you know, what if the Russians invade? You know, they, they would say, you know, we're going to join the territorial defense forces. We're going to fight for our country. Now, I, what, what I did not predict was that the Ukrainians would be as effective in their defense as they have been, that they're yeah. doing so well. And, and I think at this point, you can say, if you look at that original Russian invasion plan, which I think was designed to capture Kyiv very quickly, 
and then occupy perhaps the eastern two-thirds of Ukraine. I, I think at this point, I mean, the Ukrainians have won in the senses that's beyond their capabilities now. And we'll say, I mean, I, I, it, it does look, as Catherine said, that they've reverted to a more traditional uh, Russian offensive in, in Donbass, and they're now abiding by their doctrine. Uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, although the Ukrainians, I think, are pretty, they're, one, they're pretty dug in, uh, and they're putting up, I think, a pretty stiff resistance. And there are a lot of people that say if, if the Russians don't, you know, sort of succeed in three weeks or four weeks or so at that point, you know, they really become a spent force and they really are not capable for a long time of conducting a major coherent op offensive operation. So we'll yeah, see. I would, yeah, I would agree that time is not on their side, really, um, uh, especially as, you know, right, right now we're seeing high allegedly, you know, majority of Russians appear to be supportive in, in the few polls that we've, we've seen done um, of, of the special military action, which they are not legally allowed to call war, or they go to prison for up to 15 years and pay, a, you know, a, almost a month's salary fines if they don't. Um, but, you know, they're facing in, inflation. The Russian economy is actually kind of surviving. They get a billion dollars a day or pardon me, billion euros a day from still from their energy exports. Um, so it'll be important to cut those off, but they are facing inflation. 800 companies plus have, have suspended operations, foreign companies in Russia. Uh, planes are, you know, airports are effectively, you know, closed to uh, their airspace is uh, European and, and American airspace is, is closed to Russian planes. So, you know, um, who can come in and out of the country is now very circumscribed. So this, you know, is all bad uh, uh, for Russia. So I just finished a piece here for um, Journal of Democracy called From Resurrection to Ruin, how how Vladimir Putin is, uh, has, is wrecking Russia as he attacks Ukraine. Um, uh, no, I just, uh, yeah, the effects of the, um, of the sanctions, I think the World Bank project projection is this year, the Russian economy will contract by 11%. Yeah, and the head of the Russian central bank said she expects it to contract by eight to ten percent. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's the that's the worst since 1998. Yeah, yeah. So. Catherine was talking about uh, regime, you know, regime matters. She was saying I was thinking of how leadership matters, and I was going to ask you, Ambassador, about the Ukrainian resistance, right? In that on that front, Zelensky's uh, decision was critical. Uh, remaining in Kiev and heading his, you know, forces into battle against Russia, and that was you. You said that the Ukrainians would have fought, and that's what you know. Experts like yourself would have predicted that, but still, right? Um, Zelensky's decision, it 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 comes to. It, I mean, it it struck me as as a critical turning point in many ways that. Probably, I'm assuming Russia didn't also calculate that way. They thought maybe, you know, the leadership could leave Kiev. Could could you expand upon that a little bit? And then I also wanted to discuss. Yeah. My, my guess that uh, that uh, Zelensky's quality as a wartime leader was not predicted by the Kremlin. I don't think it was predicted by many Ukrainians. I don't think it was predicted by many in the West. You know, most yeah. people thought he was going to leave, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I mean, you know, this is somebody who I think uh, ha has kind of defined this as his, you know, this is a former actor. He's defined this as the role of a lifetime. 
And that decision, I think, to remain in Kiev, you know, when you had both the United States and the British offering, we will help get you out so that you can get to Lviv or get someplace where you can set up a government exile, you know, and the idea is I don't need a ride out of Kiev, I need ammunition. I mean, that was, and I think he's really, and part of this are his skills as an actor. I, he knows how to play to his audience. So, you know, every day he's giving a speech to a different audience. And I think he really knows how to target that audience and you see it. Um, and I think that just the image that kind of defined the leadership differences were, were, was, I think, about 10 days into the war, here's Zelensky, you know, and he's, uh, you know, in his you know, kind of brown khaki shirt with his, wearing his, uh, his uh, battle vest, out having tea with three or four Ukrainian soldiers who are manning a checkpoint, in, you know, in central Kiev. And then at the same day, you have the picture of Vladimir Putin meeting with his minister of defense and this chief of the general staff at this table 30 feet away, even though presumably these guys have been vaccinated, I would assume to get to that close to the president. So it's just that difference in leadership styles. Um, and then I think there's this was a second image was when uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnston visited uh, Kiev about two and a half weeks ago. And they go out and they take a walk in the city. And I'm, and I'm watching this. Going, oh, yeah, there's Institutskaya. They're walking down her shop. I mean, they're, it's not like they're walking you know, just like with a hundred yards or a hundred meters of where they're meeting, they're, 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 they're some distance away and he's out there walking. And then the thought occurred in my mind, I said, when was the last time you know, anybody saw Vladimir Putin out walking around Moscow? So I, I think you've seen uh, Zelensky really emerge as a wartime leader. And I think that has helped rally a people who were prepared to be rallied. Um, Catherine, uh, you know, sort of managing the international public opinion through information, disinformation, misinformation campaigns, that's supposed to be, that was supposed to be one of strengths for Russia. And, you know, uh, we've seen that largely failing. Of course, you know, there's a question whether that failed domestically. There's a question, you know. That's exceeded domestically. Yeah, and the, it, the, you know, UN not, all everybody voted against Russia. The West did, but you know, multiple, you know, India and others. So China. in terms of yeah, in terms of number of countries, it was higher. So how do you see that? How did Russia play that mm -hmm. when when you contrast it with you know Zelensky's uh, sure. role, like Ambassador described? Yeah. So you don't have to. I mean, uh, Zelensky is. It's first of all, there's there's who needs what, right? So Ukraine needs to keep, uh, the, the Ukrainian leadership needs to keep attention on the conflict. And so, it, so Zelensky is obviously the man for this moment because he's very effective on social media. He does a nightly um, tele, uh, you know, message on uh, Telegram channel and on, I assume on other channels. They're very active on uh, Twitter and whatnot. Um, uh, because they must have international support, right? They must, and and they they must keep it in the news, um, because they, they they won't survive without Western support. Um, Russia doesn't have to win a popularity contest in the West, and they're not going to. Um, and so there's no point in trying. They're not trying, um, but they are. You know, the the point in my book is that they had been subversive politically, especially in the European Union. 
um, trying to sort of break up the union of the, the unity of the European Union. And so the lingering effect of that is, yes, Germany is going to try to get off its incredible dependence. 40% of its energy comes from Russia. Um, it will take time to do it. But they didn't jump to it right away, um, and because that would do tremendous damage to the German economy. Obviously, if, if natural gas is cut off, that is in particular, which is hard to quickly and easily get from somewhere else because it's, it's harder to move. Um, then, uh, you know, that's hard on the German economy, and that will ripple through the global economy. So I think the earlier strategy um, of building these relationships and trying to be disruptive within the European Union has actually worked well uh, at this point for, for Russia. I'm sure it was a surprise and again, a, a misread of how all of this worked on Putin's part in it and, and you know, perhaps bad intelligence on um, the Social Democratic Party. But you know, from from you know, Marine Le Pen has never the, the the far right candidate in in France has never been closer to winning the presidency than she was two weeks ago. She gets money, got money from Russia, right? She she in 2017 she was busily visiting Vladimir Putin and getting seven million euros from a Russian bank to run her campaign. So you know, he I I don't think that we have evidence that that hasn't paid off. The other thing is you mentioned not everyone voted to condemn Russia. Uh, in in the Security Council, well, the, the not everyone is 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 you know the two two countries with the biggest global populations. One is India, and and one is China, uh, and they most certainly did not uh, vote. And um and, and the UN and Russia will and and neither will I will predict because of the ties that Russia has built with both economically, uh, in particular in not just the energy field but in particular there, um and, and so you know they. They're not aiming their propaganda at us here in the West, but I can't help but notice that Tucker Carlson uh, at Fox News is the star also of, of Russian news um, because um, he carries their message just fine. So they were very, very effective, Kadir, <laughs> with that. Um, Putin is, is not going to be doing a nightly Twitter or Telegram message. That's just, you know, he's almost 70 years old. That's not him. Uh, Zelensky is a 44-year-old guy who has to keep the global global attention on this. Putin doesn't pro probably want global uh, attention on this. So I actually don't think the strategy has failed. Everything has led to this moment. Yeah. Who Putin cares about in terms of opinion, he's not running for world president, um, is, you know, his own society. And what and what they've done is essentially cut. And this is why I just wrote this article on how he's wrecked Russia as well. 30 years of reform. Um, has been undone over the last, I would say, six years in particular, but the last eight weeks, um, Russians can can you know no longer use Instagram, Facebook, or or Twitter. They can still access YouTube, um, but they but they um, you know YouTube channels of the opposite he's of the opposition can't take payments anymore from within Russia because of our sanctions um, for their channels. He has jailed. The oppos any opposition who would uh, organize people on the streets. Um, he has, um, you know, complete control now uh, over state media. Um, and so Russia has been taken back to about 1984 um, in, in terms of freedom of speech. So, so obviously that's fear for an, an autocrat. That's not confidence. That's fear. If they find out the truth, um, yeah. Russians will rise up. Right. Uh, uh, just a 
on, on China and India, um, it's been interesting to me, I mean, I think China has done everything rhetorically it can to be supportive of Russia. And so they've not voted against Russia in the UN, they've not criticized Russia, but you know, what Russia is doing here is it, it has to make some in Beijing very uncomfortable. The idea that you, know, that you would take uh, Crimea away from Russia, which the Chinese have never recognized as Russian territory. And then the declaration of the two so-called People's Republic and Donbass as independent states, you know, that's anathema to the Chinese because that really undercuts their position with regards to Taiwan. But while I think the Chinese will rhetorically uh, not challenge the Russians, I don't think you're going to see the Chinese moving to help the Russians out in sanctions. And this goes back to 2014, where after you had the first Western financial sanctions that cut uh, Russian banks off from Western credit, there were efforts by Russian banks to get credit from China, and the Chinese really didn't help out. I, I think in part was they didn't see Russia a particularly good investment, but there was a concern in China that they did not want to get crosswise with the sanctions and then become targets of secondary sanctions. And my, and my guess is that there have been some quiet hints passed by Washington to Beijing that you don't want to get into secondary sanctions because for China, their, their two biggest markets are still <clears throat> the European Union and the United States. On India- so we have a slight, slight disagreement. Okay. Finally. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. no, no, it's not. It's not very big, but keep guys, sorry to interrupt. I, I would just say that- so things have changed in the last eight years uh, with China and, and Russia in terms of, of interdependence. Um, so China, you know, China has a coal shortage. Who's got coal? Russia. Uh, China, you know, China has to keep its economy going uh, and has an almost infinite need for energy. So Russia has done a pivot to the east with energy supplies. China can can I, I think what's going to happen, Steve, is is that um, they're they're not necessarily going to give Russian banks loans, but they're not going to sanction Russian energy, oil and gas, and so and coal, and um, they're not going to cancel contracts for uranium plants, and so that's giving Russia, the Russian economy revenue. We are doing all of those things, right? And so that's where the sanctions are leaky, and China's not going to be helping us, um, but uh, or Ukraine, but they're not doing anything overtly uh, new to help Russia either. So there, I agree with you, but. They're also not really helping the Ukrainian cause particularly. But, but, but I think there are some, some limits though, though, is, is one is, again, uh, as Europe reduces its consumption of Russian natural gas, and that's gonna take some time. Yeah, probably uh, two or three years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the Russians are gonna have to be real fast at building LNG facilities because, or, or a 2000 kilometer pipeline because that gas that now goes to Europe, there's no infrastructure to move it towards China. And on the oil question, I mean, this is one that could impact both Russia and, I'm sorry, both China and India, is the one sanction that I think really is in is crying out there now is for uh, Western insurance companies. I'm thinking here, particularly Lloyd's of, Lus Lloyd's of London, London, deny yeah. insurance for Russian flagships or ships carrying Russian cargoes, particularly oil, because if those ships can't get sanctioned, all of a sudden, the risk factor becomes huge. I mean, if you if you lose an oil tanker uh, full of oil, you're, you're losing you know hundreds of millions of dollars potentially. And if you don't have insurance for that, that's going to make it, I think, much more difficult for the Indians and the Chinese to pick up the slack. And so I, I think that's the one big thing that could be done now by the West that uh, could uh, close off at least part of the uh, ability of other countries uh, 
to uh, take up uh, some of the slack from uh, Western energy demand for Russian products going down. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing I would just say, I, I think that's right. I mean, that, that, and in the piece I told you about that, I, that uh, on how Putin has wrecked Russia, that, um, the consumption from China on natural gas can't make up for what's being lost uh, or will be lost, hasn't been lost yet um, to uh, Europe. Uh, the European market will be gone forever once um, once you know they have a different supplier and set up LNG terminals, uh, liquefied natural gas terminals in in Germany. That said, you know in the past eight years, Russia hasn't been sitting on its hands anticipating this possibility, and um, they have built a new type pipeline, 2,000 kilometers uh, to China called Power of Siberia. So, um, you know there there is a way of increasing the capacity of that pipeline. And then what the, one of the things that China and Russia have been working on together um, is, and China is interested in with Russia, is, is actually they were increasing their level of, of foreign investment in Russia before the war, and they were increasing their consumption of Russian energy so that it's now up, up to 15% of Chinese energy comes from Russia. The northern distri- the, the sort of northern trade route through the Arctic that is being caused by climate change is another thing that's attractive to China. And so conceivably, you could use um, some of the liquefied natural gas terminals that already exist in Russia to move natural gas over to China that route. And so that's what they're looking for. They could increase capacity that way. So, you know, I wish we had more more leverage on China to get them to cut off that market um, to Russia, but, uh, but we don't uh, right now. So will they do a lot of new things um, with Russia at the moment? Probably not, but they're not going to stop what they're already doing. The This kind of support by China and others, though, uh, I feel like that would help sustain the Russian economy, perhaps make it more manageable. But uh, the the route to, I guess, global influence, that kind of good old days, I guess, for Russia would still require a major, you know, continued major purchases by the Europeans on the energy market, which leads me to think that you know, at some point, uh, you know, even phasing out oil is going to be accomplished theoretically by the end of the year, not sooner. And then natural gas, you know, Europe is not really willing to touch that right now. So I feel like Putin at some point might want to make a maneuver to prevent, you know, that kind of energy sales from being completely, uh, you know, uh, stopped. But mm-hmm. so um, given that, do you think along the way, like Europe might say, okay, well, you know, we've cut quite a bit, but we can continue to buy some. And then that would allow Russia to retain some of that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trade. Yeah. So, I mean, the strength of Europe uh, is in its unity. And so Hungary, where Russia has been under Putin, and let's distinguish between Russia and Putin, but under under Putin, uh, he has been building very close ties with the with the Hungarians and the Serbs in particular. You have populist right wing governments there. Uh, Mr. Orban is, you know, in some ways has used Putinism as a model, um, and so he's uh, dragging his heels uh, about you know cutting off uh, Russian gas. But I think here, you know, again, this is a terrible miscalculation on uh, Mr. Putin's part, right? He did not expect that there would be European un- unity on this question of oil. He, and, um, and there appears to be, although we're seeing shakiness with, 
with Hungary um, in, in particular, and Mr. Orban just won re-election. So again, I think unanticipated on his part, but let me just caution. I did say earlier, time's not on his side and he's, you know, of all things, he's not stupid. Uh, so he, he, he may be aware of that. And that natural gas has not been cut off yet. So, you know, uh, once it's gone, it's gone forever. And um, I, I bet he's doubting that it'll get cut off, just as you said, Kadir, to, to zero. Um, but, and he might be right on that. We don't know yet, just because there's been a declaration or an intention. We have, have not seen that implemented and it'll take time, as Steve mentioned. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. Ambassador, I want to switch to turn to NATO, mm -hmm. unless you want to add something. But, you know, Sweden's membership, Finland's membership, uh, this is a serious talk now. Stoltenberg just made some remarks about that. And I wanted to ask you about the future of NATO. You know, I, as promised at the beginning, I was going to make some comments about Turkey's position, maybe very quickly, if you allow me for a minute. You know, Turkey has, uh, you know, good relations with both Ukraine and uh, Russia, on, especially on the economic front. Turkey is highly energy, energy dependent, uh, similar to uh, Germany in some ways. But Turkey has also sources from other places, Iraq, Libya, Iran. Uh, and uh, then Turkey also relies on Russian and Ukrainian tourists, which this summer is going to be difficult. And Turkey wanted to lead the diplomatic efforts. Still, a NATO country supports Ukraine, has given drones and other material support to Ukraine at the same time trying to find a quick resolution which you know both sides as you've described uh they're not yet there yet probably um but so what what does this tell you about the future of nato one of the questions we got from the audience was are we going going to go back to a real cold war environment uh that would last a long time how do you see that future uh given given the broad unity that has been sustained so far, and that unity is even increasing if you include now, you know, Germany's changing posture, Finland, Sweden joining NATO, et cetera. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the many miscalculations that Mr. Putin and the Kremlin made uh, was in their underestimation of the impact that this invasion would have on Western unity. So I think looking at, you know, Looking at the United States and Europe, you know, late last year, you, you, you saw, you know, we're very divided here in America. Uh, you're going to have a new chancellor in Germany at uh, the beginning of 2022. The French president has his election. Boris Johnson's in trouble. You know, there's a lot of transatlantic divisions lingering from the Trump presidency. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, Putin came up with the perfect way to sort of galvanize NATO, you know, really <laughs> restore US-EU relations. It was a, you know, it, it was pretty remarkable how that turned out. And so you have seen some things. I mean, you, you now have, I think, NATO much more serious. You know, once the invasion began, you saw deployments that were going into um, the eastern flank that were on a bilateral basis all of a sudden became part of the NATO response force. It, it was a NATO deployment. Um, I, I think there's, a, there's muscle memory in NATO. NATO knows what it needs to do. You have now, I think, most countries are on track to meet the 2% objective for amount of GDP spent on um, defense by 2024. 
that turnaround in Germany has been remarkable. I mean, Chancellor Schultz is basically, and remember Germany at this point, I think was about 1.5% of its GDP on defense, which was a significant increase from say 2013 when it was only about 1%. I mean, there's a lot of extra money there, but Germany, if the projection uh, until two, three months ago was Germany was not gonna hit 2% until 2030. Well, Chancellor Schultz said, we're going to approve 100 billion euros. That's $110 billion now. That's the equivalent of what, Ger that's twice what Germany spent on defense in 2021. So Germany will hit the 2% this year and exceed it. Uh, and that's going to buy, I mean, if the Germans get the procurement right, that's going to buy a lot of capability. I mean, when, when Lithuania hits 2%, you know, that's good. You know, but when, you know, the, a country the size a big of big economy, that's yeah. big. And that's part of what you saw. I mean, that was sort of, you know, the last of an element where in sort of five days, Berlin really swept away five decades of policy towards uh, towards Russia. And that was a result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And then you have Sweden and Finland, who I think have made the calculation that they can't be confident about Russian intentions. And now is the time where their security interests would be served by membership in NATO. These are two countries that check all the boxes, established democracies, civilian control of the military and the security services, real capabilities. I mean, it dramatically, I think, will change the defense position in the Baltics if you have Finland and Sweden there. Uh, and the Baltic region becomes much, much more defensible. So you know, I think NATO is going to emerge as a much stronger institution. It will be restoring some of the capabilities that it was drawing down for the last 25 years, because I think there now is a real question. You know, my, my own view is, I think, particularly after the experience of the last 10 weeks, you know, Putin probably doesn't want to tangle with NATO. Yeah, but, that seems but, clear, seems clear. Yeah. But I think having said that, you know, I'm not sure. And, and again, he is lot, tangling with NATO now. A lot of people though. six or eight months ago would have exactly. said, you know, Putin won't be stupid enough to launch a major invasion of Ukraine. So I, I think the kind of the, <laughs> the confidence level that we had that we would not have a conflict with Russia is different now. And I think NATO will respond. So if NATO holds to that, it's going to be a revitalized organization. It'll be capable of defending Europe. Uh, and I think it also is we're heading for a period of cool relations with Russia. I, again, I think it, in Washington, you know, my sense is that however this war ends, uh, you don't get back to a normal relation. I mean, you know, the president has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Uh, and I mean, you know, when you look at what's happened in Mariupol, the indiscriminate shelling and bombing, that's, that's a war crime. You look at what happened in Bucha, those are atrocities, those are war crimes. Now, and they're unfortunately, they're so widespread that this is just kind of the way the Russian military operates. Vladimir Putin's at the guy at the top, and you've not seen one word out of the Kremlin saying, you know, we're going to investigate that. There was, remember, about five weeks ago, there was this report of Ukrainians uh, taking Russian prisoners, and they shot three of them in the leg after they took him prisoner. And the first thing that the, the president's administration, we're going to investigate that. You know, the Russians sort of just deny it. And that's I just, accountable, that's, accountable government versus authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. Right and, and, and so I, I just have a really hard time seeing you know, and I, I personally regret this, having spent probably half of my career in the Foreign Service trying to work on improving relations between Washington and Moscow. But I, I think it's going to be a long time to recover from this. Yeah. Thank you. Dr. Stoner, I want to give you the last word. Um, um, so you you actually at the beginning talked about how this started in 2014 to 
if you take the long view, this is only a, another stage, miscalculated, botched effort, etc. But you also pointed out, you know, Moldova uh, matter. So what would be sort of Russian endgame, if you can call it that way? What would be their ideal solution for, ideal uh, scenario for now? Like, you know, capture Donbass and then that won't stay there, I feel like. It will continue to Moldova. It will, th this region, uh, you know, once Ukraine is completely cut off from Black Sea, that would be probably, you know, ideal uh, scenario for mm -hmm. Russia. Mm -hmm. It won't stay there, uh, it feels like. What is, mm -hmm. what is your assessment on that? Well, that's, I, I think you're probably right there. Um, so, so it could be that we get into, as we did in 2014, some kind of uh, Minsk-like agreement that is, again, not well enforced um, after, especially, you know, the Russians have done, as you're saying, effectively cut Ukraine off from the Azov Sea and the Black Sea, um, if they take Odessa, for example, and if they were to come in from Transnistria, as I showed you, and uh, in into Ukraine that way, um, so that might be the goal right now, and then negotiate some kind of quote unquote ceasefire or agreement. It's pretty unlikely. I think the, the Ukrainians are going to be okay with that. Um, uh, especially given, you know, the, the war crimes that have happened. I, I think they, you know, they may not want to negotiate until the Russians withdraw completely. And I don't think that'll happen. So this is going to go on uh, a while. And even if there is some sort of ceasefire after Russia, the, you know, Mr. Putin feels they, and it is him and his entourage, his group feel that they've gone as far as they can go then you're right there there is the real possibility that they will just pause and then try it again uh in a few more years and so i i think that you know we've now had this experience as has ukraine um and we won't sit quietly and allow that um to happen and so just getting back to steve's earlier uh, uh, uh comment that you know our own secretary of defense has said now the goal is to weaken russia so this never happens again or doesn't happen again soon um so our strategy has shifted even as theirs has. And so they, you know, they won't achieve even, even you know, the goal of, of, I think, cutting off from the Black Sea and then expecting we'll all accept that and, and rearming and coming back. Uh, hopefully that is not what will happen. Thank you, Dr. Stoner. If uh, nobody else has any additional comments, I'm going to close this session here. I wanna thank you both for such thoughtful and detailed comments and um, information. Uh, this has been a great session. Um, so thank you, Ambassador Pfeiffer, and thank you, uh, Dr. Stoner. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Always a pleasure. Yes, even when we disagree. <laughs> I'll, let's go grab coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both. Bye. Bye. Our audience. Bye. Bye.